To me, just presages uh, increasing uh, disaster uh, for the church. And when you give God an hour on a Sunday and think that's sufficient, that's sufficient. When you prefer Super Bowl to public worship, you are saying something profound about yourself and even more profound about God. You're saying that there is something in creation more valuable to you, more important than you, than the worship of God, which will be the glorious uh, activity of the people of God throughout the ages in eternity, unwearyingly so, because God is an infinite abyss of glory. Uh, and I've never... I, I've never, I, I, I've no Christian background, none whatsoever. Um, I've never really got my head round uh, good Christians, and maybe far better than I, uh, 
who seem to think that on the evening of the Lord's Day, they can sit at home and watch television when they can be hearing Christ speak to them. You know, Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 2 about uh, uh, Christ coming and preaching in Ephesus. Christ never went to Ephesus in person. But through his ordained servants he spoke. And I think you're saying volumes about yourself, sometimes through lack of instruction, but you're saying volumes of what you think is worthy of God. And God's blessing will not rest upon that. So I think that's why church history is such a, a valuable, necessary component of uh, a Christian's life. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, you know, people talk about the issues that conflict the church today. Read Augustine and the Donatists. Read Augustine and the Pelagians. Read um, Tertullian and whoever, Praxis, versus Praxis. Read read Irenaeus, um, read, read Calvin and Fig, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And I just felt it might be worth reiterating that um, the Sabbath day is creational. It's not simply a mosaic. Uh, Moses, God through Moses said, remember the Sabbath day. God embedded it in his creation and uh, for the good of his creation not for its, its uh, deleterious misery. Dr. Grant, the next one is for you. Please share some thoughts about how Veray might have guided the church during the pandemic, especially with respect to government mandates uh, upon the church. Thank you so much for that question. <laughs> you know, one of the things that is striking in Vire's teaching is he always connects the preaching of the gospel to the creation mandates. We in the modern evangelical world are accustomed to people beginning the story of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. But Veret said, in order to understand why the Apostle Paul begins the proclamation in, say, Colossians chapter 1 with Christ preeminent over creation, or uh, the Gospel of John beginning with the pre-incarnate word, is that we need to understand the whole of God's comprehensive, eternal decrees worked out in his good providence over time, in space, uh, in history. So what, what Vire always did was he would look at all of those creational mandates. Um, according to him, 27 creational mandates in the first two chapters of Genesis, which give us clarity about gender roles, um, the, the, the exercise of authority, the uh, task of uh, man and woman in the midst of the world. Uh, everything from the reality that uh, God is God and we are not uh, across the board to you know basic details of how authority is meted out in tasks. All of that is embedded 
in the first two chapters of Genesis and then is worked out through the rest of scriptures, Vire would say. As a result, he would argue, uh, like, say, from the example of Daniel, the, the wise appeal when magistrates have uh, ungodly or draconian decrees. Uh, he did not believe in revolution, uh, but he would never compromise the call and the mission of the church uh, even to perverse decrees. It's why he was hounded and chased, uh, persecuted for his entire career. That he had two really serious assassination attempts. One poisoning uh, that uh, that cost him almost a year of his life as he slowly recovered. He wasn't afraid to boldly proclaim the truth even when all of the forces of power and authority around him opposed him. But he also did not create insurrection and rebellion. So for us, we have a sticky wicket in our time. Uh, I, I came by air from Nashville, Tennessee. I had to fly through uh, Atlanta, which all of my dispensational friends know is where the rapture goes through, too. <laughs> and in every airport, there are signs that say it's federal law to wear a mask, and you hear announcements, you know, and you just want to say, hey, y'all, do you not realize that a law has to be passed? It has to be voted on, there has to be, you know, consensus, and a mandate is not the same thing as a law. You just want to say that. At the same time, I did want to get here <laughs> so that I could hear John preach. <clears throat> um, so there, there is this really fine line that we have to walk where we're not in rebellion, but we're exercising a wise appeal and we never compromise the church. Um, I, I'm astonished by our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who uh, worshipped with bombs and sirens going off all around them this past Lord's Day. Um, we have to be really careful with other people. We have to be really respectful of choices that people are making medically. But we also, I think, have to be um, heedful of the lessons that people like Vire have given us. And that is, you know, the, the, the same thing that John just said about Jonathan Edwards. The, the message is the same. The, the mission is the same. We don't suspend the work of the ordinary means of grace, uh, f you know, for, um, you know, th questionable and, uh, and oftentimes uh, imperious uh, purposes. I don't know if that answered the question, but I, I think Vere would have said, y'all come on, Sunday morning, Sunday night, let's go. Use the microphone that is off right the now. microphone that is off. That would have been great for that question. It was, 
I think we would have cranked it up for that question. Um, thank you very much. Dr. Payne, this is a couple similar questions I'm going to bring into one. And it, it, the question is essentially what responsibility and privileges do lay people have in evangelism with respect to the mission of the church? It's a great question. I'm glad you didn't ask me about Jonathan Edwards and vaccines, by the way. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Fauci's great, great, great grandfather had advised him to get that. Anyway. What was the question again? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so the Great Commission... Uh, really properly understood in its primary application is for ordained ministers. Now, you, you may have you may not, did not hear that in uh, Sunday school growing up, you know, you just heard go, go take the gospel to the nations and, and uh, you know, rightly so, there is, an, there is an application, a secondary application as it were to, to the church, which I'll explain in a minute, but if you just think about it for one moment, what does the Great Commission actually say? It says, go forth into all the world and make disciples, baptizing, right? So if you were to just do exactly what that verse says, that means everybody would be baptizing, right? And, and, and we understand that that's something that a lawful minister does uh, in, in the context of a, of a, of a ministry. Uh, also, teaching all that Christ commanded. That's an expository preaching ministry. So the primary application of the Great Commission is for... Uh, the ordained leadership. However, let me continue, because there are those who say full stop right there, and they think that lay people have no responsibility in evangelism at all. I know some folks like that. I have had conversations with guys that have said, you know, we, we really aren't responsible for evangelism. It's just, it's just the ministers. Uh, but that's not true. Um, 1 Peter 3 uh, 15, we need to have a, an answer for the hope that's within us when the, and, and to respond with gentleness and respect. We're, we're called to be uh, the light of the world. We're called to be salt and light. Um, uh, so there's a sense in which as God's uh, people, we are supporting the ministry of the means of grace. We're supporting foreign missions and sending out gifted, ordained, trained, uh, godly men to plant and strengthen churches domestically and, and internationally. We are praying unto those things. We're supporting those things. We are giving towards those uh, ministries. And, um, and we're also, in the context of our neighborhoods and in our workplace and school and different uh, spheres that, that God has placed us in, being salt and light, sharing the gospel. Uh, I was just down in Fort Lauderdale this past week where uh, Evangelism Explosion uh, was established under D. James Kennedy. And... Um, you know, it's, it's a, it, you say what you will about, uh, you know, this kind of formulaic version of evangelism. It's a simple way to get ordinary Christians sharing the gospel with lost people, which is what we need more of. Amen? We need more of that. Um, and so, so primary application of the Great Commission, it's, it's for ordained uh, ministers and it's for the church to support the work of the ordained minister in, in the means of grace ministry. But the, the entire church is called to be salt and light, light of the world, have a, have a response of the hope that's within you, do this with gentleness and respect, and to see yourself also as a part of the light that is to be um, in the world in the storm. Thank you. Dr. Hamilton, I have another question for you. 
Given the warnings that you gave regarding declension in the pulpit and in the churches and in the seminaries, what is GPTS doing to remind slash teach slash encourage their young men to attain knowledge while remaining humble? Well, I don't really know. Um... <laughs> I don't sit in the classrooms uh, listening to men teach. It's an embedded conviction, uh, a principial conviction. I don't mean principle, I do mean principial conviction at GPTS that the men who teach should, with their weaknesses, be models of the grace of God and the gospel. And there is nothing more basic to being a model of the grace of God and the gospel that you mirror in your life, weakly perhaps, but nonetheless truly, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what essentially is that grace? Well, you, you could spend a whole day talking about it, but I've always found it profoundly significant that when the first servant song in Isaiah begins to fill out the, the Genesis 3.15 hope of a serpent crusher and think of the generations subsequent to Genesis 3.15 looking and waiting, who will the serpent crusher be? Will it be Noah? Noah, will he give us the rest? Will he crush? No, it's not going to be Noah. It's not going to be Abraham and you go down through the ages and, and then you have this tantalizing um, Isaiah 7, 14, uh, the virgin will conceive. You know, virgins don't conceive. Ancients were not biologically stupid. Um, yeah, we might be. Um, but, and then... He will be Emmanuel, God with us, mighty God, everlasting Father. And you can almost sense the escalating uh, anticipation. And then you come to the first servant song. Behold my servant, the third in a triad of beholds. Behold the idolaters, behold the futility of idolatry. Now, behold my servant whom I uphold. I will put my spirit upon him. And what's the first significant thing we're actually told? He won't break a bruised reed. He won't crush a smouldering wick. I actually forget what the question was, but I'm going to talk about this anyway. <laughs> I do remember now what the question is. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we have married together exquisite tenderness and fierceness to the enemies of the gospel and long-suffering patience and forbearance and kindness with the people of God in their obtuseness and slowness. Even to the point where the Lord Jesus Christ said, my life's been a waste of space. I sometimes ask my students, who says... 
in the Bible, my life's been a waste, an utter waste. And, joke, no, it's Jesus. Isaiah 49, second servant song. And the Lord Jesus marries together this true, sinless, genuine humanity of exquisite tenderness with, with fierceness, forbearance, gentleness and grace. And so at GPTS, we stress that, we, we teach that, we trust that as Hebrew syntax is taught, students will get the texture and flavour of that. We trust the systematic theology is taught. They will not only hear about it, but feel the texture of it. It's a very feeling thing. The Bible's full. I'm a feeling Christian. The Bible's full of feelings. You can feel truth. You can taste, taste and see that the Lord is good. You can taste truth. So at GPTS, we, we're concerned with, with biblical faithfulness, with confessional fidelity, but we know that if those things are not married, however weakly and poorly, but married manifestly to the palpable grace of Jesus Christ in a man's life, we're just wasting our time. So it's a priority that um, I'm not part of the faculty. I'm an adjunct. I come in occasionally. I like the accent. Um, <laughs> I can say honestly, and I've had some experience of going here, there, and in many other places, I believe that Greenville exemplifies what I would hope a seminary would be, not perfectly, Greenville's far from perfect, but it's on a journey. And I think, no doubt, because of the times we're living in, I do believe that Greenville has a very significant under God role to play as long as it doesn't forget what its calling is to equip and prepare young men, not simply intellectually, but experientially with the grace and power uh, of the gospel, which is what exactly Jonathan Edwards was all about. Well, men, I think it's time to uh, adjourn, but I, I know I speak for everyone when I say thank you so much for your labors, your willingness to stand up and ask questions. We're, we're very grateful, and thank you again.